You have your study guides. We're going to need those today because I am going to double time this sermon. I've been told, I've been ordered to cut my sermon time in half today because we have baptisms at the end of the day service, which I'm super excited about. That is going to be the climax of today's service. My sermon is just sort of a uh, appetizer for what's to come. It's going to be a great day at the story as we have at least two baptisms. I mentioned on Facebook and Instagram this week, if God's working on your heart and you think today is a day for you to be baptized, you haven't been baptized before, uh, let's, let's do it. Today could be the day. Don't be shy. Uh, and if you were baptized, but you feel like you've fallen away from God uh, and today's a day to recommit yourself, Let's do that as well today at the end of the service. So I have to get through this sermon. Instead of my usual uh, 35 minutes, I've been ordered uh, by Giovanna and, uh, and uh, Johnny and Brianna and the hospitality team and the children's church people, among others, uh, that I have to cut in half. So 17 minutes. I should probably get to it, right? Y'all probably know by now that I uh, plan my sermons based on questions people are asking. So every single week, we start uh, planning our sermons and our sermon series based on some real everyday question we hear real everyday people asking. If you ever have a question you'd like to hear us talk about in worship, tell me. I, I bet we can incorporate it in, into a sermon series uh, down the line. Um, this whole Paul sermon series, Not Ashamed, is based on the, the question of Paul's legitimacy. Can Paul be trusted as a spokesman for Jesus? Is Paul on the same page as Jesus because people have questioned that. Some people really love Jesus and they're not so sure about Paul. And so that was the question that we began this series with. And as I thought about today, preaching a sermon that's half as long as most of my sermons are, I needed a question that was simple enough, you know, a, a, an easy sort of no-brainer kind of question uh, to wrestle with for these 17 and a half minutes. And so I landed on one that I thought none of us are going to have a problem answering. It is uh, the question of why do bad things happen to good people? And then I sat and thought about it. How in the world do you address that question in 17 minutes? <laughs> I'm a crazy person is what I'm telling you. Uh, but this is where I feel God leading me as I uh, thought about Paul's life. Because, man, y'all all know somebody who was generally a good person but had more than their fair of bad stuff happen to him. And if anyone had room to complain in that regard, it's Paul. Paul was a good man. He made some mistakes early in his life, but who hasn't? But he was a man that gave his life to Jesus. He was a man that gave his life to serve God and, and, and make sure people know about the grace of God. And, and he traveled nearly 14,000 miles, all told, to spread the gospel message. And you would think that with someone like Paul, who's so committed and so self-sacrificing in the way that he goes about his his life and his faith, you would think God would protect someone like that. You would think Paul would curry some favor with God because of the life that he was living, but that's not the story Paul's life tells. Paul's life tells a story about a man who, even after he comes to Jesus and gives his life for the gospel, he, he has his, more than his fair share of hardships. Y'all know someone like that. Maybe not to the same extent as Paul, but y'all know someone who doesn't, you don't think they deserve what they're getting from life. You all know someone. You know the person who hadn't smoked a pack of cigarettes ever and winds up with lung cancer. You know that feeling. The, it feels unjust. It feels unfair. 
You know the man who's a faithful husband, faithful father, and his wife insists on leaving him or cheating on him or whatever. You, you know the child who deserves the best, the very best protection and care that she can get, and yet she's abused in her own home. You know these stories. You, you know the feeling of injustice. Those are the kinds of things that lead us to ask this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's just not fair. Y'all know the couple who would be the best parents in the world, but for some reason they can't conceive. Y'all know what I'm, maybe you're the person. Maybe you're the person. Your friends look at and think about and talk about and pray about and they say it's just not fair. Why is all that happening to him? Why is she having to go through all that? Where is God and all that? It's just not fair. Why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe the you that's sitting here today is that person who's dealing with more than what you might deserve. That's probably what people who knew Paul thought about him. He went through more than any person should ever have to go through, and yet it didn't stop him from doing what he did. He was a good man who went through some terrible things. We all know last week we talked about how he was a social outcast. The last couple of weeks we've talked about how Paul dealt with these trials of uh, rejection in his own home from his own people, the people who looked at him and said he was an honor student. He was an Eagle Scout. He had it all together, most likely to succeed, and yet here he is living at home with his parents at the age of 30-something, and he's making tents for a living, and he's traveling all over the world to, to spread this false gospel, they believed. And so what happened? You know, poor Paul. It's just not fair. What's happened to him? What a shame, Paul. Uh, and, and he was uh, his whole life battling this kind of rejection, this kind of loneliness. Uh, Paul was a lonely man. If you read his letters, you'll read a lot of uh, references to his own loneliness, his struggles with loneliness. Um, and that wasn't just in terms of his hometown and the people that expected more out of him. It was also his personal life. Paul was not uh, married when he wrote his letters. We know that Paul was single at the time that he wrote his letters. We don't know if he was always single or if he was a widower. My hunch, based on the context of his writings and what he had to say about marriage. I think Paul was probably married before and his wife died and he was alone for most of his adulthood. Loneliness, man. Some of you know what it's like to struggle with loneliness. And I wish I could say that Paul's situation changed after he came to Jesus and got to know all the first Christians, but it didn't because Paul had his struggles with the early Christians as well, especially the leadership. He had a few Christian friends that stood in his corner but Paul did not really get along with Peter and James and John in Jerusalem. Did y'all know that? I think we all kind of envision Paul and Peter hanging out like buddies, like they were best of friends. That's not the situation at all. There were deep divisions in terms of methodology. Paul knew he was called to be a light to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul knew he was the one who was supposed to take the gospel of Jesus out into the world, out beyond Jerusalem, so that people who weren't uh, Jewish people could know the hope of God. And Paul said these people should be able to follow Jesus without first becoming Jews like us. Peter was not keen on that idea at all. Peter and the other Jews in Jerusalem, they kind of thought about 
Gentiles in the same way that we Texans kind of think about non-Texans. Like that's the, that's the best comparison I can draw. Like Texans are, we are pretty arrogant when you think about it. And, and we think that non-Texans, they just live by different rules. Non-Texans are just different kind. They're kind of dirty. And we don't really, we don't, the worst part is they're not from Texas. And you know, that whole thing, that kind of uh, deeply felt, unexplainable sentiment is what existed in Peter's heart about non-Jewish people. So Peter said, it's fine if somebody who's not a Jew wants to follow Jesus as long as they become a Jew first and they convert and they go through all the rituals and things. Paul was out there just making disciples. Paul didn't care about whether or not someone became a Jew first. Paul wanted people to know Jesus and it caused this tension between Paul and Peter. Did y'all know Paul and Peter only met twice? Two times they shared the same space together. And those meetings were about 10 years apart from each other. And when they did meet, it was very icy. It was tense. Paul called Peter a hypocrite in front of all the other Christians. Paul said, Peter, you're behaving like someone who never knew Jesus. Um, there's a painting of Paul and Peter that I love. It's by El Greco, and I think it uh, more accurately describes the relationship between Peter and Paul. Do these guys look like they're happy to be together? <laughs> this is Paul here, and this is Peter. And Paul's like pointing to the Bible. He's like, see, right here it says, go baptize all nations. Right here it says it, go baptize everyone. And then Peter's over here. He's got some keys in his hand, and Peter's like, hey, Paul. You know where these keys came from? Jesus gave them to me. You know what the keys go to? They're the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Why don't you stop quoting scripture to me, Paul? You know, that whole kind of thing, like, you know, boy, you know, that kind of thing. But Peter and Paul, they had some tension going on. And so I know it's hard for us to imagine, but Paul, as he shared the gospel, as he did what he thought was right, not only had to worry about people in his hometown pitying him and rejecting him, he had to worry about Christian leadership, the people who should have his back more than any others, during this season of his life, about them subverting him or trashing him behind his back. And I wish I could tell you that I've never seen that happen in our world today, but I've seen it, man. Somebody goes through something, a Christian goes through something that other Christians in their life don't agree with, and in that moment of suffering, that difficult season that they're in, the time in which they need their Christian brothers and sisters to be there more than any other time, they're abandoned. That's the kind of thing Paul deals with. If you've been there, Paul knows what it's like as well, that kind of isolation. That wasn't all Paul dealt with. I'm going to run us through a list of other things that Paul dealt with. He runs us through this list in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28. As Paul goes from place to place starting churches, this is what he deals with. Five times he was beaten with the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was uh, stoned. Like with stones, y'all, not like Colorado. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day adrift at sea, danger from everywhere, sleepless nights, hungry and thirsty. And then as a church planner, I love this. On top of all that, I'm under daily pressure because of the anxiety for the churches. Preach, Paul. I was up all last night praying about this church and worrying and anxious and everything. And I just, I get it. And some of y'all get some of these things too, what it means to be ostracized, what it means to suffer, even though you are living a life that wouldn't seem to deserve that sort of thing. 
A few verses after this in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he was given this, um, or he had this voice that kept whispering in his head. It's a voice that y'all might know pretty well. Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. Um, and, uh, and Paul says that this voice whispered in his ear at his darkest moments, you're insufficient. You're not enough. You don't have what it takes. You're a failure. You're a loser. These were the words this messenger whispered into Paul's ear. Some of y'all know that voice. And if you have that voice in your ear, sometimes I don't recommend you saying that uh, to many people. You can say it here, but don't tell anybody out there you got the messenger of Satan in your ear. They'll think you're crazy. But Paul knew that this voice was telling him things that weren't true. And y'all have heard it too. I guarantee you. Moms and dads. You have that voice in your head telling you you're not doing a good enough job for your kids. You're failing at being a parent. You see other super moms and super dads out there. You think they're super moms and super dads because you only see the best moments. Doing things for their kids you can't do for yours. Your kids ask you why they can't have a house like so-and-so has or why you can't stay home with them like so-and-so's mom stays home with them. And you carry all that weight around with you and those whispers in your ear. They're messengers of Satan telling you you're insufficient, you're not enough, you're failing. Paul dealt with those same kinds of struggles and he was very open about it in his second letter to the Corinthians. Now, you would think given all this stuff that Paul deals with, that God would at least be good to Paul in the physical department. Like, uh, I've got a friend that says, yeah, I'm going through all this stuff, but I've still got my good looks. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you would think that Paul, maybe God, the least God could do for Paul would be to let him look good while he's going through all this stuff. That is not at all. <laughs> The case. Unfortunately for Paul, we have historical evidence that indicates Paul was not much of a looker. The first one is biblical. It is in 2 Corinthians 10.10. Here we go. This is what people said about Paul. His letters are strong, but his body is puny. <laughs> he's weak, and he's a boring preacher. <laughs> Poor Paul, man. Not even his looks were worth much. The only other physical description of Paul we have comes from a non-biblical source, which is called the Acts of Paul, which is a little bit later, but this guy claims to have known Paul personally. Here's what he says about Paul's appearance. A man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart, and he had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. Can you imagine, Paul? Waking up in the morning after giving his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, waking up in the morning, going and looking in the mirror and going, come on, God. Seriously? I gave you my life? A unibrow is what you gave me in return. Really, God? Come on. If any of you have ever been unsatisfied with your physical appearance, especially in comparison to others, I think Paul could probably relate to that as well. That wasn't Paul's only physical problem. In addition to being unattractive, we think Paul was probably as blind as a bat. There's uh, several uh, verses that allude to Paul's at least partial blindness. 
Uh, in Galatians 4.15, Paul says to the Galatians, he says, when I, were, when I was with you, I feel certain that if you could have done this, you would have pulled your own eyes out and given them to me. An allusion to Paul's failing eyesight. At the end of Paul's letter, um, Paul takes the pen from his transcriber. Paul usually had someone else writing his letters for him. Paul takes the pen from the transcriber, and I think Paul says kind of a joke that we miss because we don't get it, but I think the Galatians would have gotten it. In Galatians 6, Paul takes the pen and says, see with what large letters I write with my own hand. And the Galatians probably chuckle and go, yeah, because Paul's blind as a bat. That's why he's writing with these. That's the first century equivalent of I can't find my reading glasses. You know, This is what's happening in the letter to the Galatians. But my favorite reference to Paul's apparent blindness comes from the book of Acts, chapter 23, where Paul is kind of on trial in front of this group of priests, and he picks a fight with one of them. And they're standing maybe 10 feet away from Paul, and he just dresses this guy down. He says, you're a hypocrite. I pray for God to strike you dead today. I can't believe God has let you live. You know, he's just cursing this guy and Paul's friend whispers to him in Acts 23, Paul, are you sure you want to talk to that high priest like this? You can get killed for this. They'll kill you for talking to the high priest like this. And then Paul says to his friend, I didn't know it was the high priest because he couldn't see him 10 feet away. And he's like, I take it back. I'm sorry about those things I just said. These were the, these were the issues that Paul struggle with. And the worst issue yet was his, some physical illness Paul, that nearly killed Paul when he was planting a church in Asia. Most Bible scholars think it was malaria. Paul had malaria. Uh, I, ha I have a friend who had malaria when she was in Africa. And she said it was by far the worst thing she's ever been through. And uh, she has given birth to twins. So if that tells you anything, <laughs> malaria sounds really, really awful <laughs> in comparison. So, uh, so, so Paul, we think, struggled with this. Now, finally, on top of being shipwrecked, abused, lonely, uh, having uh, unattractive looks, Paul's most serious problem was spiritual. In Romans chapter 7, the great apostle Paul says this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Later in this passage, he says, what a wretched man that I am. The apostle Paul, what a wretched man that I am. What I want you to see here is that not even Paul was immune to temptation, not even Paul was immune to sin. God didn't shield him from those things. And the question we're left with is why? Why didn't God shield Paul from those things? Didn't Paul do enough to earn God's protection in these ways? Didn't God do enough to avoid all of these, uh, Paul do enough to avoid all of these bad things? Why did so many bad things happen to so many good people? Using Paul as this example. And I hear this question all the time. If the Bible had an FAQ section in the back, why do bad things happen to good people would be in the top three. No doubt about it. And what I hear when people ask this question isn't just why do bad things happen to good people. What I hear them saying theologically is why did God let that happen to me? Or why did God do that to me? And that springs from that old Christian adage 
that God will never give you more than you can handle. You've heard it. If you've heard that adage, raise your hand. God will never give you more than you can handle, which is found in the Bible in chapter nowhere is it found <laughs> in the Bible. This idea that everything that happens to you is given to you by God or is God's will for your life, I don't know where that idea comes from. That is not a biblical notion that every single thing that happens to you, the worst thing that's ever happened to you was the preordained will of God. I don't believe that to be true, and I don't think most people that wrote the books in this Bible believed that to be true. If you really are asking, like, why did that happen, you know, what caused that to happen, there's several different ways of answering that. If you've got a friend that knows you're a Christian and they're asking you, why did that happen to me? Why, when I didn't deserve that, did that happen? There's several different ways of answering that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because, for one thing, the world is a broken place, addicted to sin. Sometimes bad things happen for that reason. Sometimes bad things happen to you because people do bad things to you. Sometimes bad things happen to you because people can be idiots. Sometimes bad things happen to you because you're an idiot sometimes, <laughs> if we're honest. Don't quote me on that. Sometimes bad things happen for no real good reason at all. What I want us to see is the other side of that question. I want us to learn how to ask a better question. When we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? I want us to ask, am I asking why so that I can have someone to blame? Or am I asking why so that I can find some higher purpose? And there's two different ways of asking why do bad things happen. You can ask the question while looking back, or you can ask the question while looking forward. And those who look back want someone to blame and want an explanation. Those who look forward want some higher purpose and want to find some redemption. Those who look back ask what did I do to deserve this? And those who look forward ask, what can God do to redeem this? Those are the two diverging paths I want us to see. Paul examined his life. Paul looked at everything that he had been through, all of his struggles, all of his trials, everything that he had suffered through. And then he wrote these words in Romans chapter 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What I want you to see here is that by the grace of God, Paul learned how to ask a different question. God gave Paul a new why. Paul didn't sit around and moan and pout and, and have a pity party and say, oh, I've been through so much. Paul said, I've been through so much, but God is sufficient for me, and God can redeem what I've been through. God, Paul didn't blame God for his hardships. Paul looked for God in his time of need. One time Paul asked God to take the struggle away, and God's answer, and we don't know why, but God's answer was, I'm not going to take your struggle away. But my grace is sufficient for you. 
Then God says, For my strength is made perfect in weakness. God's strength is perfected in weakness. Hmm. We are not very good at weakness. I don't know if it's a Texas thing or if it's a Houston thing or if it's a story thing, but I can already tell part of our culture is happiness and joy, and I love it. And I love that you all come in here and you're happy, and you even put on a happy face when I know your lives are falling apart behind the scenes. You put your church mask on, and you come in here and you play the part because you want everybody else to know you're okay, and I get it, but I want you to know you're not fooling anybody. I know there's pain in this room. I know there's fear in this room. We come in here smiling and joyful, and we should be joyful to be in the house of God, but I know that underneath the surface, there's brokenness, and there's concern, there's doubt. I know that there's financial concern throughout Houston right now. I know that oil is at $39 a barrel, and I know that some of you are panicking. You're already looking for jobs, some of you. And I know that there's anxiety here, and I know that as perfect as we try to make things look, things aren't always what they seem. I want you to hear one thing today, and I want you to just, you're all sitting close enough, say, say this to the person next to you. Say it loud so everybody in the room can hear. I've got six words for you. Say it. Repeat after me. God's power, God's power is, perfected is perfected in weakness. In weakness. This is what I want you to hear today, that when you let yourself be weak and vulnerable with God, you will find a new strength you didn't know was there. The, the situations you're going through that are breaking you down will open you up to be filled with God's grace in a way that you didn't think possible. There is a strength you cannot imagine at your worst moment, the worst thing that's happened to you. It can be redeemed if you let God do the work. I was approached this week by a couple um, they called me. I was in the office. It was an afternoon. And they said, uh, we need to come by. We're in a time of crisis. I could tell it was serious. I cleaned out the rest of my appointments that day. And I said, come by. They came by. And we talked. And they sat in my office and they cried. And they said that they had been at the hospital. And she had had a miscarriage. And they already had a name for this baby. And they didn't know what to do. They said, do we have a funeral? No one understands what it means to lose a baby that hasn't been born yet. What do we, what do, we do? And through their tears, they told me what it felt like, but I, I couldn't really relate to them because I didn't really know what it was like to sit in their shoes. You know, I didn't know what that was like to, to lose a child in that way. I, I, I didn't understand it. But I knew someone. I knew someone who had. I knew someone who would understand. It's another couple here at this church that's been through the same thing three times. 
I stepped out of the office and I called them. And I said, would it be okay if I gave this couple your number? I know that you're still hurting, but do you think you could talk to them? And they said, sure, give them our number. We'll talk to them. That same night, those four people had dinner together. And as I thought about those four people sitting at a table, breaking bread together in the midst of one of the darkest times any one of us could imagine, I wondered to myself if those two people that I called, if they ever imagined at the peak of their darkness, if they ever thought that God would ever be able to take that path they were on and turn it to something good. I wonder if they ever thought or fathomed it possible that God could take such darkness and bring some healing from it. They sat around that table that night and they talked about their unborn children in heaven with Jesus. They broke bread and they prayed and they cried. And that night at 11 o'clock, I got a text from the couple that had called me and sat in my office eight hours earlier. Three words. Healing has begun. I'm not in any way saying that God gave those people that hardship, but I am saying that those people trusted God to do something with it. Those people trusted God to bring some hope and healing out of it. And I am saying to you today that whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through, no matter how dark it seems, do not give up hope. Don't sit around and look back and say why. Look forward and say how. How can God take me and what I'm going through and bring some healing? How can God take what I've been through and use me to heal someone else who's going through something similar? All things, all things, all things work together for good for those who love God. Would you join me in prayer? Holy God, we thank you for the promise of your grace. Life is messy. It's not always perfect. We don't always understand why things happen the way that they do. But your promise to us isn't that things will be perfect, but that things will be okay. God, we thank you for the gift of baptism, for what these waters mean. No matter what we go through in this life, you are with us today and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.